Grab your Bible. Go ahead and turn to Ezra chapter 3, where we left off last week in our series of Ezra going into Nehemiah. We're halfway through chapter 3. Here's what I want to do this morning. I want to read it to you. I want to read our passage. We're going to start in verse 7 and go through the end of chapter 3, verse 13. And um, I'll go ahead and tell you, this is part of the reason I mentioned earlier that this is an odd Sunday for me. Um, I left my notes for this at home. Uh, and I did it intentionally in the sense that um, I just want to go in a little bit different direction than um, I had originally thought. So I'm just going to read this to you and talk to you a little bit. Is that all right? Can we just talk a little bit this morning? And I'll give you a flavor of what I believe this passage would have for us today. Ezra chapter 3, verse 7, Money to the masons and the carpenters, and food, drink, and oil to the Sidonians and to the Tyrians, to bring cedar wood from Lebanon to the Sea of Joppa, according to the permission they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. Now in the second year of their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, that would be April or May for us, Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josadak, and the rest of their brothers, and the priests, and the Levites, and all who came from the captivity to Jerusalem. And you remember, that's just a small percentage of Israel. But nonetheless, they began the work, and they appointed Levites from 20 years and older to oversee the work of the house of the Lord. And Jeshua with his sons and brothers stood united with Kadmiel and his sons, and the sons of Judah and the sons of Henadad, with their sons and brothers, the Levites. And their job was to oversee the workmen in the temple of God. Verse 10, Now when the builders had laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, here's what they did. The priests stood in their apparel with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of King David of Israel, who you know is long past off the scene. Verse 11, they sang, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his loving kindness is upon Israel forever laid before their eyes, while at the same time many shouted aloud for joy. So that the people, that's those who are surrounding who were watching what's going on and listening, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the shout of joy from the sound of weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout, and the sound was heard from far away. In keeping with uh, where I started this morning, confessing my, uh, uh, the fact that I'm a girl, um, let, me, let me give you my... Uh, off-the-cuff intro to what I want to talk with you about this morning. I, uh, every now and then, as a pastor, you're asked questions that you seem, it seems to me, um, well, I just feel like no one really else gets the questions that I get. And uh, let, me, let me give you one. Uh, and this isn't an indictment on the question. I think it's a very, I think it's a, a very interesting question. I think it's a, it's a wise question. But from time to time, someone will ask me, uh, what would you do if you weren't a pastor? What would you do if you weren't a pastor? And I just don't imagine that you're asking anybody else that question. You know, it's just some, for some reason, pastors, they're put in this, this different category, like you're doing God's work over here and the rest of us are doing real work. And, uh, and, and I, I mean that 
uh, being in touch with my feminine side or what have you, anyway, um, at my earliest recollection, and my brother can testify to this, uh, my earliest recollection of ever having a desire for employment, right? When you ask a kid, what do you want to do when you grow up? My earliest recollection, okay, if I go way back, the first thing that I could ever think of, here's what I want to do, was not a police officer, was not a fireman, was not uh, even a doctor or a lawyer or anything, you know, with any kind of, you know, man power to it. It it was, uh, uh, stereotypically, of course, uh, it was the fact that I wanted to be a baker. Yeah, I wanted to be a pastry uh, chef of sorts, uh, and this is, <laughs> this is at a young age, right? And uh, I, I had told my mom early on that I was going to have a bakery one day, and, and I just done that. I, just, I still like pastries. And, uh, uh, who doesn't? That's right. But um, that's what I want to do. And, and from there, it kind of developed into something more than that. I was in, I was in that sense, and maybe, maybe no one really knew this about me, even my family, but um, in that sense, I... At some point, as I got a little older, I realized I was a little odd in that, okay, that I wanted to be a baker, and, that, and I understood that because when I would get home, uh, get off the bus and go home, and my parents weren't home from work yet, and my brother wasn't home from football practice or whatever yet, and, you know, I had the TV all to myself, you know, and it's, it's prime time getting off the bus, three to five range where kids get to go home, and you watch your, you know, you watch your tunes, you watch what you want. Gourmet, you remember this guy? He's an old, uh, I think he was a Jewish guy, old gray-haired, gray-beard guy, and he was like the only, one of the, maybe a handful of cooking shows that were on at this time, right? I mean, the Frugal Gourmet, and here I am, you know, elementary school guy, and I'm watching this Frugal Gourmet guy, and he's cooking stuff, and I was just G.I. Joe Transformers Frugal Gourmets on, and I'm watching this stuff. And, uh, you know, from there, the, you know, who was the other guy on PBS all the time? The Cajun guy, the, the old Cajun guy with the, with the straps. Yeah, he, he I loved it. I would, I would watch these shows. And now, to this day, I'll just tell you, uh, if you, if you find me in my house watching TV and I'm not watching reruns of Seinfeld, it's most likely on the Food Network, all right? And I, I feel good about that to some degree because, you know, probably one of my favorite shows is The Iron Chef, right? And that's Manly, The Iron Chef, right, guys? You tracking me here? There's a lot of you guys out there watching The Iron Chef, so I don't feel bad about that. But I'm also, you know, Everyday Italian, the Barefoot Contessa, uh, you know, the, the old lady from Savannah that's frying everything, all, all these people, right? Uh, Ace of Cakes, when that guy comes on, they're making cakes and stuff. Again, the baker in me just... And I, I love these shows. Last night I stayed up way too late watching back to back to back to back Iron Chef, right? Until finally one came on at like 2 a.m. that I had seen before, so I said I don't need to stay up anymore. And uh, but I uh, but I'll just say this: my mom was not a gourmet cook by any means. I mean, gourmet for my mom is uh, is cooking an elaborate meal, but it's done in a bag in a microwave. If y'all know what I'm talking about, the little cook in the bag. You know, it's, I think it's supposed to actually go in the oven, but she still follows the microwave directions for it. And uh, so, it, you know, there wasn't a whole lot of, there were no uh, spices and, and ingredients in my house. It was like ketchup, mustard, salt and pepper. That, that's all you had, butter. And butter was the main ingredient. And so, but for, for me, I remember even as a young kid watching some of these shows and I would go into the kitchen and I'd start, I'd grab whatever I could find and I'm mixing ketchup with Worcestershire and adding extra hot sauce, whatever's there. I'm, I'm trying to concoct something. And to this day, my wife will tell you that, I still like to cook. I don't do enough, as much of it as I would like. But she, she still says that, you know, I always take it a little bit too far. You know, no matter what the recipe is, no matter how perfect it is, you know, Radley gives me a good recipe and it's just perfect as it is. I got to try, 
an 11th ingredient. If there's 10 good ingredients, I've got to add number 11. I just always liked seeing what goes in and how like this, this beautiful dish would come out. And Man, I'm using feminine words. Yeah, beautiful. It's a beautiful dish. Um, man, this is going downhill. And so I, I just, I, I just, I just liked the finished product coming out. And, and here's, here's where I want to go with this. And I promise I'll, I'll be done. Um, there are many ingredients, and the flavor is uh, the end result, and it's, it's good. It's what they intended it to be, and that's what Im- impresses. The one who eats it. You know, you know what I'm talking about? It's where we get this idea of uh, when we say, you know, it boils down to this. That, this. that the flavors just all condense and intermingle and they all boil down and it comes out with this flavor, with this, with this end result that is impressive, right? And I, I was always impressed with that. I say all that to say, as I was uh, late last night watching uh, uh, Iron Chef and trying to determine whether or not I want to go in the direction that I originally thought of going here in Ezra chapter 3. Um, I, I was praying the whole time, God, I, don't, I just wasn't feeling it. Honestly, I just wasn't, I wasn't feeling the direction that I was going with the text, etc. And um, I, I started to just ask God, what, it, what is it about this that it's not, it's not settling for me in my heart? And the, the whole cooking thing, image that I've just been trying to share with you, that whole cooking image came to my mind. And I'm watching these guys, and these are gourmet Iron Chef guys, and they're putting things together that I'm just, I'm like, wow, why would they even put that together? And it comes out, and the judges are all amazed. And I started thinking about this text, this text, Ezra 3, this, this last half of the text, it is uh, somewhat of a pinnacle of all of Ezra's author wants to say here. What is, Lord, is there a flavor? Is there, a, is there something that this boils down to? that needs to be communicated to our people. So here's what I want to give you, okay? Briefly, let me show you just a couple details. Let me give you just a few of the ingredients that lead to what I think may be the boiled-down version of what we need to hear from this passage this morning. The author goes into, uh, makes a great effort to once again help us see that the nation of Israel, this, this people who have come out of captivity, these generations who have come out of captivity, many of these who are on the scene here at the foundation of the temple, many of them were born in captivity, right? You remember that? Some of them were not. We'll see at the end of this chapter that some of them were guys who lived through the captivity and now they've made it back. But the majority of them were, were men and women, young men and women who've lived through, who didn't live through the captivity but who were born in the captivity and now they are back. And the author goes to, uh, uh, to great extents to tell us that they have been uh, specifically and intentionally, um, what's the word I'm looking for? They have been attentive to all the details of how things are supposed to go. Does that make sense? When we looked at the altar, when it looked at them coming back, and now as we go into this, this section of them building just the foundation of the temple, right? The author wants us to see the king of Persia. A couple things jump out to me in that very first verse. Number one is, this is almost verbatim. This is almost verbatim to the story of Solomon building the first temple. 
He did the exact same thing. The text says almost the exact same thing, that they collected this money, they got workers, they got carpenters, they got masons, they collected the money, they sent it to the same, check this out, they sent it to the same pagan people to buy the same type of materials. It says that they went and they found cedar wood, but not just cedar wood from anywhere. They went to the forests of Lebanon. It was known to be some of the best uh, forests for cedar trees that could be found. It was, it was the best of the best, and that's why Solomon went there. But you've got to recognize in this passage that here now, these guys who are born in captivity, they come back and their heart has been, first things first, back to the basics, remember last week, following the very blueprint of those who originally built the temple, their heart is, let's do it the right way. We got off track, and God put us into captivity. He judged us. He disciplined us because we got off track somewhere. Let's get back on track. Let's, let's pay attention to the details that God says is important. And right down to the wood, you see here. They went and got cedar, just like Solomon did, from the very same fool. Now, you could just write this off and say that it's because it is the certain season that they began. Uh, this second month season, the April-May season, for this location in the world, it's the dry season. And so that's when you build. That's when you start this kind of stuff. So you're not getting rained out every day, okay? So it could just be that, but I think it's, I think it's more. They use the same materials. They called on the same kind of people. They bought it from the same place. They do it in the same way. And at the same time, keep going. They appointed Levites from 20 years and older to oversee the work of the house of the Lord. And the next couple verses give us details about how specific they were about choosing those who would oversee the temple. They didn't just let anybody oversee the foundation of the temple. They were very intentional. They did it just like God said to do it. They used Levites. The only difference here, it's interesting to note, is that the Levites they chose were 20 years and older. In all the records earlier on of the uh, building of the temple and the tabernacle, etc., the Levites were to be 30 or 35 and older. Most scholars believe that the reason that we see here that it's an, a younger age is because we've got a smaller group of Levites to choose from. Thousands Check this out. Thousands, I think uh, the estimation is about 24 to 27,000 Levites were involved in overseeing Solomon's temple. You get about 350 Levites who are available to oversee this reconstruction. Okay? Yes, they did. Verse 10. Now, when the builders had laid the foundation, note that it's only the foundation. They haven't completed the temple. There's nothing special about the foundation, there's nothing ornate about the foundation except for perhaps its size. The priests stood in their apparel with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord, according to the directions, or literally, according to the hand of King David. Point? They began a celebration at the very outset, as soon as they get just the foundation, just a glimpse of what this thing is going to be. They get the first real uh, visual of God fulfilling his promise. The foundation is down. This thing is really going to happen. And they start this celebration, and they don't just start it haphazardly. They do it exactly like David did. Remember a few weeks ago when I, when I showed you the story of David bringing the ark back to Jerusalem? Remember, remember the, the group of people that he had come in? Remember, remember the ensemble 
of, of praise and priests and Levites that he had ushered the ark in. It's the exact same order as we see here. This group who had never known David, most of them who had never actually seen the original temple, they do it just the way David intended it to be done from the outset. They're going back. They're going back. And so you see in this passage just the author uh, continuing this theme of this, this new generation of believers intentionally being obedient at every point that they knew to be obedient. For it was that disobedience, that very thing of obedience that their forefathers had missed when astray got off track and took them into captivity and had this, this, this beautiful temple burned to the ground, desolated. All right? So now they have a heart to get it right from the outset. They're going back. They're going back. Not only that, it says that they sang a song that David would sing. Verse 11, they sang praising and giving thanks to the Lord, saying, quote, and this is from a psalm. It's also used other places in the Old Testament. It's used repetitively. It was a very intentional word of praise. They were even going back in what they were singing here to the Lord. And here's what they said. For He is good. For His loving kindness is upon Israel forever. Very simple. Very simple cry. That's the flavor I want you to get today. That's what I want this to boil down to is not for us to be so caught up in the details. Understand that the author is, is, he is, he is weaving this thread through all of the book to emphasize a couple things. The faithfulness of God. It is everlasting. It is continuous. It never fails. It never falters. The faithfulness of God. And he's also emphasizing this renewed orthodoxy of the new generation. Men and women who wish to be obedient to the call of God. We're just going to do what God says to do. Two main themes through this book. And here's where I want us to end up, and here's where I want us to focus this morning with that in mind. They sang praising and giving thanks to the Lord. And try and get this visual in your mind, if you will. For He is good. Notice that there's no emphasis on what they have done. Remember, they've still got to be in awe that they're not in bondage anymore. They've still got to be in awe that they're actually back in Jerusalem. So it makes sense that he is good. And his loving kindness is upon Israel forever. That word forever does not just mean that it is uh, chronologically. He is good all the time. His loving kindness is upon Israel. Upon meaning it rests it doesn't flounder. It doesn't come and go. The loving kindness of God that He has for His chosen people, it rests. God is faithful. And He's faithful forever. Not just in the long run, but day in and day out. Day in and day out, He is faithful forever. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord. Why? Because just the foundation... Just the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Just the potential, just the promise was there that the presence of God would be returning 
that this reuniting of the nation with their God was coming true. A couple things about this that I want you to understand. They would not have the Ark of the Covenant any longer. It's long gone. The Ark of the Covenant, sort of the key piece to this whole building, if you will, the central uh, resting place of God for the Old Testament, is gone. And they weren't going to get it back. And they, they knew this. But still they built the temple. Many of the things that were to be in the temple, critical to encountering God, critical to entering the presence of God, they, were, they weren't there anymore. They were gone. Holds. The old men who had seen the first temple, here's what they did. In the midst of praising God with loud shouts, that includes them, okay, don't miss that, that includes them, you also have on the faces of the older Jews who saw the first temple, who saw the magnificence of Solomon's temple, you see in their faces as they are worshiping, as they are praising, as they are saying he is good and his loving kindness abides with Israel forever, you hear weeping simultaneously in their praise. And the author tells us why. They wept with a loud voice when the foundation of the house was laid before their eyes. They wept, some say, because they were attempting to be a discouragement to the new generation. Some would point out that they are making this uh, somewhat snobbish attempt to say to the younger generation who is doing the work on this new temple, who is working on the rebuild, the second temple, which I don't think that's the flavor. I don't think that's where this passage boils down to. I think where this passage boils down to is Ezra trying to help us to see that in the midst of reality hitting these returnees, there is praise. There is an uncontrolled eruption of gratitude to the God who has forever and ever and always been faithful while they were yet unfaithful. And in that moment of praise, you have, you got, you have two pictures here. You have two groups of people, if you will. And, and I hope that you in your mind are painting this picture. You have the one who sees the glimpse of what is to come, a renewed presence, a renewed unity with their God. And they are praising God with grateful, full hearts. And you can imagine that if you get a picture of them, they're standing to their feet, there are smiles on their faces, they're amazed that they're standing where they're standing and that the foundation is complete. And they're, in, and they're in complete awe, knowing where they were born. And now where they are, their countenance is lifted, their hands are raised, they're celebrating in their worship. And at the same time, you see this older generation, also, I believe, celebrating in worship, but their faces look completely different. These men and women who saw the original temple at just the glimpse of the new foundation, realize something. They realize with pure hearts that it will never be the same as it was. The temple will not be as ornate 
as it was in Solomon's day. It's not going to look the same. It's not going to be the same. The ark's gone. Many of the utensils and the accoutrements that were important to the worship in the temple are gone. And while they sing he is good and his love endures forever, he is faithful to us while we were unfaithful, very literally, we were unfaithful. Now they stand and they see a new foundation being laid and their hearts weep. I believe they were humbled. I believe their hearts were praising God, but from a different perspective. Not from the perspective of the potential that, look at what God is going to do now. But they were praising God from a humble place, saying something like this, if only. Our God is, is faithful, he is good, his loving kindness has endured through all our unfaithfulness. If only we were so humbled that they praise God with a heart that says, I can't believe you're so good to us. And they weep. They weep standing right next to the guy who can't wipe the smile off his face because he sees the potential in what God is going to do now. All right, so um, I, I realized as that hit me that um, as we gather together and we spend a lot of time talking to you guys about what our attitude should be, what our heart should be as we gather and worship, I realized something about, about you perhaps. And maybe this is something that God wanted me to learn or to remind me of. Is that as we, in, in, in somewhat the same way, we as the called out ones of God. Those of us who have come out of our captivity based on our disobedience, based on our sinfulness, those of us who have come out of captivity to return to the presence of God, we've come by way of a sacrifice. Remember last week, we come by way of the cross and we gather together into the presence of God and we see in some sense just the foundation that is being laid. As Preston read, the glimpses of what heaven will be like, of what goes on in the, in the very presence, the very physical presence of God. It struck me that, you know, this is, in some sense, it's our foundation realized. Uh, it struck me as I got to these ending verses that uh, as we come and we praise and we even lift our voices simultaneously, some of us, uh, praise God from different perspectives. Some of us are praising God. Some of us stood here this morning as we were singing with smiles on our faces, grateful for the faithfulness of God, excited about what He's done, how He's brought us out of captivity, and where He's going to take us, what tomorrow is going to hold. And yet some of us, at the very same time, with hearts just as full of praise, have not our heads lifted, but our heads bowed low. And maybe, as I said earlier, our mouths can't seem to form the words to even sing because our hearts are so heavy, because the faithfulness of God is so real in our sin that took us into captivity, His faithfulness that brought us out of captivity, our hearts that say, what about those years that I've lost? 
Some of our hearts came in this morning full of what God wants to do in your life as a, as a believer. But you're at a place where you look back every now and then and, and you're, you're grateful and your heart is heavy because of what God has done for you in spite of what you have failed to do. Uh, the passage says that they praised God and that those who were surrounding them couldn't tell the difference between the weeping and the shouting for joy. Sometimes, and it's not my job, sometimes I can't tell the difference in your faces or in your hearts, whether you come to praise God with a joyful heart or with a humbled heart. The important part of this, I believe, is, is that we, we praise Him. We praise Him. And I think that um, if you haven't found yourself in both camps, sometimes with a smile that you can't wipe off your face and sometimes with a heart that you cannot unburden, um, then God's not fully perhaps disclose to you everything that he will. So this morning, here's where we're going to end up. We're going to sing one more song. You guys can go ahead and come up. We're going to do forever. God is faithful. You know it. And um, this morning is to just give you, in whatever way I can, permission and help you to be settled in your heart to know that sometimes praise comes with smiles and sometimes praise comes with heads bowed low. You know, sometimes you may not even be able to stand up. And if it's because you're in, in awe of God's goodness in spite of your sin, then that's just fine. Sometimes you can't help but raise your hands and shout. Let's just give God what He deserves, right? Let's let God move our hearts. We just have to listen. We just have to listen. Let's pray and we'll close with this song. Father, we, Lord, I pray that, you, uh, that you've been speaking to our heart. I pray that uh, in whatever way you wanted this, this word to permeate the hearts of those individuals who are here this morning, I pray that you've done it. You've done it in a strong and mighty way. Father, we're here as a congregation we're gathered together, young and old, collectively to say that you are good. You are forever, forever faithful. In Jesus' beautiful name, who is our cornerstone.